Did Treber get the retribution he deserved? I'm Roger and this is Bookshook. And in this episode, I discuss the second half of March's book, The House of Spirits. So each month I take a book I've never read, I split it in two, discuss each half on the second and last Fridays of the month. I'll do a first impression summary alongside my thoughts and reactions, and then raise any interesting ideas so far in the novel. Be aware, there may be spoilers. I'd love to share your thoughts and ideas at future episodes, so please leave a comment or start a conversation below. Or if you're listening to the episode, send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. Welcome to Bookshook. So this episode is all about the second half of The House of Spirits from chapter 7 called The Brothers. Now I've removed any swear words and there are some very adult themes of war, torture and sexual violence and intimidation. Let's have a quick review of the second half. Now Blanca and Clara go back to their city home. We find out that Blanca is pregnant. They tell the father and he's not happy. Remember, he almost shot the father with this baby, who is tertiary and chopped off three of his fingers. This section is quite interesting since Blanca doesn't seem to be pining for Tertio. It's also very weird and we also have Clara and her strange clairvoyant friends and a discussion of whether the souls that she is in contact with are from other planets. Very strange thinking. Esteban forces the Count to marry Blanca so he does not have the shame of a grandchild without married parents and he tells her he killed Tertio. A wicked lie. But after the wedding, Clara tells Blanca she had a vision that he was alive. We hear more about Clara's two boys now, Jamie and Nicholas. It's as if the implied author has suddenly remembered they exist and feels a bit out of place. Esteban is still very much part of Clara's household, even though Clara was beaten and, quote, she never spoke to him again. Again, I feel like there aren't proper outcomes for actions. The novel seems to follow this predestined path where no consequences seem to occur. It makes the novel feel very unreal to me. There's no sensible action and then reaction. Nicholas is in love with Amanda. She tells how she would, quote, give her life for her brother Miguel. And the narrator foreshadows this by saying, quote, one day she would have to. Hmm, really, I hardly know Miguel or Amanda. Why do I care? Am I being a bit harsh, perhaps? Now, Esteban becomes a conservative politician. He's still very lonely and estranged from his family. And we learn that Tejo and Esteban's son, Jamie, have become close friends. Tejo was taken in by Father Maria in the parish house in the countryside and then given a contact in the city of a socialist leader who helped him set up home there. Now I'm sure that Esteban will find out and there will be a big confrontation. Nicholas has these madcap schemes for making money, like selling cooked chickens and turning the house on the corner into an abattoir. His brother Jamie learns that Amanda is pregnant. He comes face to face with middle-class poverty as he scans Amanda and Miguel's abode. Quote, a world whose existence he hasn't even suspected. Nicholas asks Jamie to help give her an illicit abortion. He does so in a horrible setting. Quote, he had never administered anaesthesia or performed a surgical operation. Luckily, she survives and Clara nurses her back to health. Now, Esteban is ill. He's shrinking and decides to see some doctors in the USA because he doesn't trust Latin American ones, believing that they are, quote, charlatans closer to sorcerers. 
Now this Count is very happy to be married to Blanca without any sexual union. He knows that Blanca's child is not his, but he seems happy with the arrangement. He appears to have received quite a lot of money from the marriage. The day after the wedding night, he goes out and buys, quote, attire he considered appropriate to his new economic position. And on the honeymoon, the Count, Jean de Satigné, quote, settled his wife provisionally in a hotel and turned his attention to the task of finding them lodgings worthy of his new status. Within 24 hours, the small provincial society world knew that an authentic Count had arrived in their midst. He really does represent the materialist and a projection of outward appearances. There seems to be a question mark over where all his money is coming from because he can't seem to settle some of his bills. I think he may be overspending to pay for this extravagant lifestyle, quote, worthy of account. Now Blanca turns to pottery to bide her time but is criticised by the Count and so she stops. Part of the reason for this criticism is that the Count is involved in archaeological digs to find treasure from the Inca past. Quote, Magnificent ceramic jars, green with the patina of time, began to arrive at his house, disguised in Indians, bundles and llama saddlebags, quickly filling the secret places that had been set aside for them. Blanca watched them piling up in the rooms and was astonished by their shapes. She held them in her hands, caressing them as if hypnotised, and whenever they were wrapped in straw and paper to be shipped to far-off, unknown destinations, she was grief-stricken. This pottery was just too beautiful. She felt that the monsters from her creches did not belong under the same roof. For this reason, more than for any other, she abandoned her workshop. None of this is legal. Quote, the search, transport and selling of this merchandise was conducted in such a cautious fashion that Blanca had no doubt that there was something highly illegal behind her husband's activities. Now Blanca dislikes the mummies appearing in her house most of all. She thinks, quote, those mummies were another matter, those shrunken beings wrapped in rags that were decaying into dusty threads with their wasted yellow heads, their wrinkled hands, their sewn eyelids, the sparse hairs on their napes, their eternal, terrible, lipless smiles, their rancid odour and that sad, impoverished aura of ancient corpses made her sick in her soul. They were very rare. And she muses on who is buying them. Quote, she could not imagine a mummy as part of the decoration in a drawing room, but Jean de Satigny told her that, displayed in a glass urn, they were even more valuable to European millionaires than works of art. It was not easy to get mummies onto the market, let alone through customs, which meant that there were times when they remained in the house for several weeks, awaiting their turn to embark on the long trip abroad. Ugh, poor Blanca. She's waiting expectantly for a newborn life to arrive at the house and all this death and decay enters. Now she thinks she can hear one of these dead mummies moving around and one night follows the sounds to find it's behind the Count's locked door. She can hear, quote, moans, suffocating cries and laughter. Clearly this is a lover's feast, right? The Count is having an affair. The very next morning, she prizes the door open and discovers erotic photos of all the servants, evidently taken by the Count. Quote, she understood what her husband said on their wedding night when he explained he did not feel inclined to married life. She runs away to her parents' house in absolute horror. Then Alba is born to Blanca and Esteban at Clara's house. I believe she may be the narrator 
of this novel, at least the parts not narrated by Esteban. The count is forgotten. Blanca ripped up all the photos. Quote, Clara, who had spent nine years without speaking, knew the advantages of silence and asked her daughter nothing, joining in her efforts to erase all memory of Jean de Satigny. Alba was told that her father was a distinguished and intelligent aristocrat who had unfortunately succumbed to fever in the northern desert. So she is not told that the father is Terchera. Talking of which, when is he going to make a reappearance? He's still alive and lost three fingers. Or is that it for, for his time in this novel? Anyway, when Alba is two weeks old, Amanda, who has recovered from the abortion she had, leaves with her brother Miguel. This breaks Jamie's heart, but he doesn't pursue her. Now, Esteban is a doting grandfather, but, quote, not enough to bring him closer to Blanca. I'm thinking, good, you maimed this child's father. When are you going to get your comeuppance? Alba is brought up in this eccentric household. Nicholas becomes a spiritualist. Life is great for Esteban Trueba. Quote, ever since his relationship with Clara had deteriorated, he transferred all his finest sentiments to Alba. The child meant more to him than his own children ever had. Every morning, still in her pyjamas, she went to her grandfather's room. She entered without knocking and climbed into his bed. He would pretend to wake up with a start, even though he was actually expecting her, and growled that she should not disturb him, and that she should go back to her room and let him sleep. Alba tickled him until, apparently defeated, he permitted her to look for the chocolate he always had hidden for her. Alba knew all his hiding places, and her grandfather always used them in the exact same order, but so as not to disappoint him, she spent a long time looking, and when she found it, she shrieked with joy. Esteban never knew that his granddaughter hated chocolate and that she ate it only out of love for him. Those morning games satisfied the senator's need for human contact. Remember, he's become a politician. The rest of the day, he was busy with the Congress, the club, playing golf, his business and his political meetings. Twice a year, he went to Tre Marias with his granddaughter for two or three weeks. That's his ranch in the country. They both returned looking tanned, happier and fatter. And then we have this foreshadowing. At the end of his life, when his 90 years had turned him into a twisted, fragile tree, Esteban Treba would recall those moments with his granddaughter as the happiest of his whole existence. It looks to me like Esteban Treba is going to get away with all those heinous crimes from his earlier life. What a shame. Now, Blanca has many suitors, but Alba is one day introduced to Pedro Tetro, Blanca's former lover and Alba's actual father. This is done with no fanfare whatever. And I'm thinking, why? Quote, his hair was messy, but he had a magnificent smile, which immediately ranked him in the category of human beings who deserved to be painted into the gigantic fresco in her bedroom. The man and the little girl looked at each other, recognizing themselves in the other's eyes. This is Pedro Tichero, the singer. You've heard him on the radio, her mother said. Alba held out her hand and he squeezed it with his left one. Then she noticed that he was missing several fingers on his right hand, but he explained that he could play the guitar anyway because there's always a way to do what you want to do. Now this is sprung upon us, as I say. Maybe Blanca has been seeing him in secret for years. I feel cheated the surprise of this union. After all, Blanca thought he was dead. And to make matters worse, she doesn't go off with him because she won't have enough money if she does. Quote, she knew that if she went with Pedro Tichero, she would be banished from her social circle and from the position she had always had. And she also realised that she would never be accepted by Pedro Tichero's friends or be able to adjust to the modest life of a working class quarter. 
Years later, when Alba was old enough to analyse this aspect of her mother's life, she concluded that she had not gone with Petro Tesro simply because she did not love him enough, for there was nothing in the Treba house that he could not have given her. Remember, her job is teaching pottery classes. And I'm thinking, what an anticlimax. That was the reunion I was holding out for, and I feel let down. At this stage, Esteban Treba has become high up politically and is a senator, as I mentioned previously. Esteban Garcia, Senator Esteban's illegitimate grandson who grasped on Tertero for Esteban and whom Esteban still owes a reward, sees Alba and decides he hates her too. He attempts to abuse her in some way when he is discovered by Esteban. And when he asks little Esteban what he wants, he replies that he wants a scholarship to become a policeman. Esteban Troeba uses his influence to get him the scholarship. Quote, he decided that this was a good occasion to repay the debt and in the process acquire a useful friend in the police. Now Clara dies. Before she does so, she, quote, wrote small cards to each of her loved ones, of whom there were many, and secretly placed them in a box beneath her bed. The next morning she did not get up, and when the maid brought in the breakfast tray, she refused to have her open the curtains. She had begun to take leave, even of the light, to enter slowly into darkness. Now, we have an eloquent first-person narrative from Clara's estranged husband, Senator Esteban Treba. Quote, I know she's forgiven my violent behaviour and that she's closer to me now than she ever was before. She's still alive and she's with me. Clara, the clearest. Is that more wishful thinking from Esteban? Her death causes the house on the corner to go into decline. Flowers aren't watered, cats leave, guests don't visit. The gardens become overgrown. Quote, Everybody in the family sensed that without Clara, all reason for staying together had been lost. They had almost nothing to say to each other. Now, Jamie and Nicholas are estranged from Esteban. Esteban still has very conservative views and belittles Jamie's charitable caregiving. Esteban hires thugs to smash up Nicholas's religious society and then ships him off to North America. Esteban hasn't changed at all. Their relationship seems cardboard cutout though. I would love to see them have a heart-to-heart -heart conversation. Esteban builds a mausoleum to house Rosa and Clara's bodies, but he has to steal Rosa's body from the Deval mortuary because that family refused for him to have her. He opens the body to see Rosa the Beautiful just as she was when she died, but when he kisses the face, quote, at just that moment a breeze crept through the cypresses, slipped through a crack in the coffin which until that instant had remained hermetically sealed and in a flash the unchanged bride dissolved like a spell disintegrating into a fine grey powder. Treba worries about the rise of communism. Quote, the day we can't get our hands on the ballot boxes before the vote is counted, we're done for. Corruption is evidently rife in these politics. Blanca and Treba are still in love but live separately. He lives as a musician singing socialist songs, but she never tells Alba that Treba is her true father. Treba goes to a brothel and meets Transito Soto. They make love and she consoles him. Now, Alba is 18. She meets Miguel at university where she studied philosophy and music. She gets involved in a student strike and after two days of protesting is led away by young Esteban Garcia, the police chief, who lets Miguel know that she's Esteban Treba's granddaughter. This makes the socialist Miguel very angry. We then learn that at 14 years old, Esteban Garcia forced a kiss on Alba. 
Now, I think if we'd known this before the confrontation, it would have heightened the emotion of that meeting between Esteban Garcia and Alba. Jamie is asked by Miguel to help his ill sister from a life of drug taking. He does so, and massive coincidence alert, Miguel's sister is Amanda, Jamie's former lover. For a book steeped in the idea of fate and magical thinking, this is hardly surprising, but it does take me out of the novel somewhat. Now, the left gains power and Schreiber conspires to try to topple the new Marxist government by means of some kind of coup. Tetro gets a job in the new government and he and Blanca drift apart. There are shortages of supplies in all the shops. Treba stockpiles weapons because he's afraid of the Marxists in power. And Jamie and Alba secretly steal them and hide the weapons in plastic bags in the mountains. Treba loses his hacienda, Tre Marias, to agrarian reform. Now, I explained what that was in the last podcast. It's the government giving land back to the land workers. He is furious and drives over to Trey Marius with a machine gun. He gets taken hostage and the president orders the National Guard to rescue Senator Trey Realising, quote, it could be the detonator that would set off the powder keg on which his government was delicately perched. Now, Blanca and Alba go to Pedro Tetro's government office. Alba learns that Tetro is her real father. When Blanca says, quote, I've come to ask you to accompany us, Blanca said without prefacing her remarks. Your daughter and I are going to Tre Marias to rescue the old man. That was how Alba learned that her father was Pedro Tetro Garcia. He agrees to help. And I'm thinking, hold on, didn't Senator Treva cut off three of your fingers and send you packing? I guess he still has a love for Blanca. Quote, they led Pedro Tetro Garcia directly to the kitchen. The oldest tenants were standing by the door, guarding the entrance to the dining room where their former patron was being held prisoner. Though they had not seen Pedro Tetro in years, everyone remembered him. They sat down at the table to have a glass of wine and recall a distant past. The days when Pedro Tetro was not a legend in the peasant's memory, but a rebellious boy in love with the daughter of his patron. After that, Pedro Tetro picked up his guitar, rested it on his knee, shut his eyes and sang with his velvety voice the song about the foxes and the hens. All the old people joined in the refrain. I'm going to take the patron with me, friends, he said slowly during a pause in the singing. That's out of the question, son, someone replied. And then Tetro says, tomorrow the National Guard's going to show up here and take him out like a hero. So they finally agree to let him free. Esteban and Tetro meet alone face to face for the first time since his axing rampage. Quote, Pedro Tetro remembered him as an angry giant with a snake skin whip and a silver cane at whose step the tenants trembled and whose thunderous voice and feudal arrogance made all of nature quake. He was surprised to find the resentment he had stored up over all these years melt away in the presence of this bent and shrunken old man who was staring up at him in fright. Now Luisa Mora, the last remaining Mora sisters, gives Senator Treba news that terrible things are in store. Now remember the Mora sisters were kind of clairvoyant friends of Clara. Quote, when she compared the charts, they showed that at this exact historic moment, there would be a terrible sequence of events bringing blood, pain and death. You'll be on the side of the winners, but victory will only bring you suffering and loneliness. Dun, dun, dun. She also implies that Alba should leave across the ocean and the narrator foreshadows that in the future, quote, Alba will be taken by force. Now there's a military coup. Jamie is summoned to the president's office to help, but ultimately he refuses to help the, quote, fascist, these are Alba's words, takeover and is brutally killed along with the president. Quote, meanwhile, 
On the telephone, Alba was attempting to get word on those she was most worried about. Miguel, Pedro Tetro, her uncle Lime, Amanda, Sebastian Gomez, and so many others. Now they're going to pay for everything, Senator Troeber exclaimed, raising his glass. Alba snatched it from his hand and hurled it against the wall, shattering it to bits. Blanca, who had never had courage to oppose her father, did not attempt to hide her smile. We're not going to celebrate the death of the president or anyone else, Alba said. Now Esteban is not welcomed by the new government officials. He learns of Jamie's brutal death and thinks, quote, I had been wrong to do as I had and that perhaps after all this was not the best way to overthrow Marxism. I felt more and more alone for no one needed me anymore. Now Alba still has a love for Treber. Quote, after that terrible Tuesday, Alba had to rearrange her feelings in order to continue living, to accept the idea that she would never again see those she loved most, her Uncle Jamie, Miguel and many others. She blamed her grandfather for what had taken place, but then seeing him hunched in his armchair, calling out to Clara and his son in an interminable murmur, her love for the old man returned and she ran to embrace him, running her hands through his white hair and comforting him. Now the former presidential palace, quote, the dictator's palace paints the former Marxist president in a terrible light. Quote, People could look into his closets and marvel at the quantity and quality of his suede jackets, go through his drawers and rummage in his pantry to see the Cuban rum and bags of sugar he had put away. Even Treber thinks they've gone too far. There is an inflation, censorship, and even the middle classes cannot afford food. And Trey Moraes is returned to Treber. He dismisses all his tenants. And then the poet dies, aided by the extreme and awful events. His house is ransacked and his burial, quote, was a symbolic burial of freedom. It's a shame he was a communist, the senator told his granddaughter. Such a fine poet and such confused ideas. If he had died before the coup, I suppose he would have received a national tribute. He knew how to die, just as he knew how to live, grandfather, Alba replied. Now, Senator Treber seems to be having a bit of an epiphany. Quote, Thus the months went by and it became clear to everyone, even Senator Treber, that the military had seized power to keep it for themselves and not to hand the country over to the politicians of the right who had made the coup possible. The military were a breed apart, brothers who spoke a different dialect from the civilians and with whom any attempt at dialogue would be a conversation of the deaf because the slightest dissent was considered treason in their rigid honour code. Chereba realised that they had messianic plans that did not include the politicians. One day he was discussing the situation with Blanca and Alba. He expressed his regret that the army's action, whose purpose had been to eliminate the threat of a Marxist dictatorship, had condemned the country to a dictatorship far more severe, one that, to all evidence, was fated to last a century. For the first time in his life, Senator Trebe admitted he had made a mistake. Sunk in his armchair like an old man at the end of his days, they saw him shed silent tears. He was not crying because he had lost power, he was crying for his country. We then move into the story of Tertero. During this time, he had a premonition that it would be a harsh military takeover and his name was in the list of most wanted by the military. So Blanca hides him in one of the crazy rooms that Clara built in the house on the corner. Blanca pleads with Treber to help rescue Tertero and he gains asylum. Some redemption for Treber. Blanca and Tertero go away together and escape to Canada. And this is the first time she has parted from Senator Treber. Treber admits to being a less than perfect father. Quote, I haven't been a good father to you, my dear, he said. Do you think you'll ever be able to forgive me and forget the past? Love you so much, Papa, Blanca wept. 
throwing her arms around his neck, clasping him to her ardently and covering his face with kisses. I love you so much. After that, the old man turned to Pedro Tetro and looked him in the eye. He stretched out his hand, but he did not know how to shape Pedro's hand because it was missing several fingers. Instead, he opened his arms and the two men said goodbye in a tight knot, free at last of the hatred and rancor that had poisoned their lives for so many years. So Tetro finds forgiveness in his heart for Senator Esteban. It's lonely in the Treba house with just Alba. She sells off a lot of his belongings to help the needy. Her lover, Miguel, is a freedom fighter and she helps him reclaim the weapons she hid earlier in the novel with Jamie. But ultimately, they agree to separate as it's not safe for her. Now, shock horror, the political police raid Schreiber's house. They steal papers and force him to sign a warrant saying they went through due diligence. He refuses and they slap Alba, knocking her to the ground. Quote, Senator Treber was paralysed with terror and surprise. He realised that his hour of truth was finally upon him after living almost 90 years as his own boss. Now, personally, I wanted retribution for Treber, but never this, so I feel slight guilt, I think. And all that magical thinking and spiritualism that I was railing against makes sense now. It was allowed to flourish because it was peacetime and now all the magic has disappeared. It makes for a harsh contrast to the horrors of war. Quote, she invoked the spirits of the days of the three-legged table in her grandmother's restless sugar bowl and all the spirits capable of bending the course of events but they appeared to have abandoned her. Esteban Garcia is waiting for her to get his revenge. This is a tragic turn in the novel emanating from the previous tragic turn, that of the war and the coup. Now Esteban Garcia's men torture Alba to try to find out where Miguel is but she doesn't speak. Alba wakes up in pain next to an old university friend, Anna Diaz, and they help each other in their pain. It's a truly horrific experience for Alba. We then move to Esteban's point of view. He goes to the hotel where Transito Soto works and asks to speak to her. He urges her to help find Alba. He also admits that the peasants' entree marias are, quote, dying of hunger like a bunch of miserable wretches, and that he'd like to help them to return. He says he received a package in the post with three human fingers, a warning, and reminiscent of the three fingers he chopped from Pedro Tetro's hand. And three days later, he gets a phone call from Transito Soto saying, quote, I did what you asked me to. She has found Alba and Alba is released. Senator Esteban dies peacefully, quote, my grandfather died last night. He did not die like a dog as he feared he would, but peacefully in my arms. In the end, he confused me with Clara and at times with Rosa, but he died without pain or anguish, more lucid than ever and happy, conscious and serene. Now, originally I wanted retribution for Esteban, but this is the author's point. Life doesn't always go that way. We learn that it was Miguel's idea to ask Transito Soto to help save Alba and that Manda died in prison. Alba was moved to a different prison, a women's prison, where they all helped and supported each other. Then she's released and lives with her father, where they write the history of their family, with Esteban adding some parts. There'd be the point of view narratives. Alba writes, quote, when I was in the doghouse, I wrote in my mind that one day Colonel Garcia would stand before me in defeat, and that I would avenge myself on all those who needed to be avenged. But now I've begun to question my own hatred. Within a few short weeks, ever since I returned to the house, it seems to have become diluted, to have lost its sharp edge. 
I'm beginning to suspect that nothing that happens is fortuitous, that it all corresponds to a fate laid down before my birth, and that Esteban Garcia is part of the design. He is a crude, twisted line, but no brushstroke is in vain. The day my grandfather tumbled his grandmother, Pancha Garcia, among the rushes of the riverbank, he added another link to the chain of events that had to complete itself. Afterwards, the grandson of the woman who was raped repeats the gesture with the granddaughter of the rapist, and perhaps 40 years from now, my grandson will knock Garcia's granddaughter down among the rushes, and so on down through the centuries in an unending tale of sorrow, blood and love. When I was in the doghouse, I felt as if I were assembling a jigsaw puzzle in which each piece had a specific place. Before I put the puzzle together, it all seemed incomprehensible to me, but I was sure that if I ever managed to complete it, the separate parts would each have meaning and the whole would be harmonious. Each piece has a reason for being the way it is, even Colonel Garcia. Now I'm thinking surely this is a chain that should be broken or at least strive to be broken. What do you think? It seems like the history is written in the stars. It was predestined almost. Throughout history, there have been series of chains that have been broken and fought against feudal servitude, slavery, the vote for women. To me, it seems like a bit of a nihilist, anti-progress sentiment. What do you think? Perhaps even anti-science, letting the spirits do the action. Or maybe all these actions are written down in the stars already. In her defense, she does go on to say, quote, it would be very difficult for me to avenge all those who should be avenged because my revenge would be just another part of the same inexorable right. I have to break that terrible chain. So perhaps she does admit that the chain doesn't necessarily have to complete itself. There is a very interesting idea on the concept of time. Clara, quote, wrote that memory is fragile and the space of a single life is brief, passing so quickly that we never get a chance to see the relationship between events. We cannot gauge the consequences of our acts and we believe in the fiction of past, present and future. But it may also be true that everything happens simultaneously, as the three Morris sisters said, who could see the spirits of all eras mingled in space. This reminds me a little bit of the block universe theory of time implied by Einstein's theory of relativity. Now, the novel comes to an end. My initial thoughts on finishing it is, will this chain get broken or not? Esteban certainly didn't get his comeuppance. Life isn't a storybook where the villains get punished necessarily. I think that is what the author is trying to say. I was not expecting that very tough and harsh ending that occurred since the coup and the horrific murder of Jamie. Now, it could be argued that Esteban did get what he deserved because he had had to endure this coup but I'm conflicted. Overall, it's a dense and long family saga that stretches over many generations, some beautifully detailed writing, but I have to say that I didn't enjoy spending a huge amount of time with many of the characters, especially Poeba, who I thought was a deeply flawed character and didn't seem to show any signs of changing his ways till right at the end of the novel. Remember when he decides that he wants to help his poor peasants who worked on his hacienda. Now, there's a few questions that we had at the end of the last podcast. The narrator mentioned that he'll see Rosa again. He sees this kind of vision of her, but he also reburies her. So he does see her again. We've got that question, why do Blanca and Pedro Tetro need to atone? I don't think they needed to atone at all. They were saintly figures in my eyes. What important role did Transito play in Esteban's life later? Well, she helps to rescue Alba. And what happens to that illegitimate son that rose of the 
rape of Panchagar Sir, we, we can see what happened. He turned into this very cruel police officer who attacked Alba. So there were some interesting ideas coming out of the second half. There wasn't really a huge amount of sensible reactions to actions. Esteban chops off Tetro's fingers. Not a huge amount of consequences. He beats his wife and hello, she says she doesn't speak to him again. You wouldn't know it. He's still very much involved in the family. Listen to this, quote, Esteban Treba, who quickly lost patience and ended up shouting and slamming doors because, as he put it, he was up to here with living among a bunch of lunatics and all he wanted was a little normality. He still lives with his family with relative normality, even though his murdered, raped, wife-beaten, maimed his daughter's lover. I mean, surely this is very far-fetched. Or is it me thinking this? What do you think? It's interesting, the idea of the Winchester house and the house on the corner. There's more references to it in the second half. Quote, each time a new guest arrived, the bricklayers would arrive and build another addition to the house. The big house on the corner soon came to resemble a labyrinth. Again, we have more. Wonderful enumeration of experiences describing Amanda and Jamie's relationship only after the event. Quote, Amanda looked magnificent to him. He remembered all the wonderful moments they had shared, the times they had lain on the floor, smoking the same pipe to get high together, laughing at that grass that tasted like dry dung and had hardly any hallucinogenic effect, but did activate the power of suggestion. The yoga exercises and meditations they had performed as a couple, seated face to face in complete relaxation, staring into each other's eyes and murmuring sounds. Sanskrit words that could send them all the way to Nirvana, but that generally had the opposite effect, and they would wind up slipping out of other people's sight, stretched out beneath the tall reeds in the garden, desperately making love. The books they had read by candlelight, drowning in passion in the smoke, the interminable gatherings during which they discussed the pessimistic post-war philosophers, or concentrated on trying to move the three-legged table, two taps for yes, three for no, while Clara laughed at them. Now that relationship means a bit more to me, but it's a little too late. Why couldn't you describe this relationship when it was happening at the time? And we have more enumeration when Clara dies, quote, over the course of the next few years, the house changed into a ruin. No one tended the garden, either to water it or to weed it, until it was swallowed up by oblivion, birds and wild grasses, the blind statues and the singing fountains filled with dry leaves, bird droppings and moss, the broken dirty arbor served as a refuge for wild animals and a garbage dump for the neighbors. The whole garden became a thick underbrush, like an abandoned town through which one could scarcely walk without slashing a path with a machete. The topiaries that had once been pruned with tortured state, besieged by snails and disease. Inside the house, the curtains slowly came unmoored from their rings and hung like the petticoats of an old woman, dusty and faded. Pieces of furniture, trampled on by Alba, used them to build her houses and trenches, turned into corpses with exposed springs. And the huge tapestry in the drawing room lost the dauntless beauty of its bucolic Versailles setting to become the dark wall of Nicholas and his niece. The kitchen was covered with soot and grease and full of empty cans and piles of newspaper. No longer did it produce platters of roast pork and aromatic dishes as it had before. The inhabitants of the house resigned themselves to eating chickpeas and rice pudding almost every day for no one had the courage to face the procession of wart-faced, ill-tempered and despotic cooks who succeeded each other in that kingdom of abused and blackened saucepans. The earthquakes, the door slammings and Esteban Treba's cane had opened cracks in the walls and splintered the doors and the Venetian blinds had slipped from their hinges. No one took the initiative to repair them. The taps began to leak, the pipes to sweat, the roof tiles to crack and green stains to spread across the walls. Only Clara's blue silk covered room remained intact. Within its walls were the blonde wood furniture, 
two white cotton dresses, the empty canary cage, the basket with her unfinished knitting, her decks of magic cards, her three-legged table and the stacks of notebooks in which she had recorded 50 years of life in which much later, in the solitude of the empty house and the silence of the dead and disappeared, I put in order and read, completely mesmerised, so I could construct this story. Alba, thank you. So we have quite a lot of foreshadowing. Maybe too much. Here's just one of many examples. Alba thinks of the poet, probably a reference to Pablo Neruda, coming to the house on the corner. Quote, Almost all the most important people in the country took turns living there, or at least attending the spiritualist meetings, the cultural discussions and the social gatherings. Among them was the poet, years later considered the greatest of the century and translated into all the known languages on earth, on whose knees Alba often sat, little suspecting that one day she would walk behind his casket with a bunch of bloody carnations in her hand between two rows of machine guns. We have more about charity, socialism, class struggle. Esteban talks about Jamie's charitable medical caregiving. Quote, charity like socialism is an invention of the weak to exploit the strong and bring them to their knees. Not a particularly nice remark from Esteban. And there's a lot about Marxism. When Treber is concerned about the rise of Marxism, his supporters say, quote, Marxism doesn't stand a chance in Latin America. Don't you know it doesn't allow for the magical side of things? It's an atheistic, practical, functional doctrine. An interesting view of Marxism introducing the idea that it conflicts with magical thinking. I think this book quite likes the idea of magical thinking. There's an awful part in, in the book where there's, you see the dishonesty of the military junta that takes over towards the end of the novel. The fascist government that created the coup is so dishonest and cruel. A horrific murder of Jamie. And then when the poet dies, quote, two days later, a notice from the military junta appeared in the papers decreeing national mourning for the poet and authorising those who wanted to do so to fly the flag at half-mast in front of their houses. The permission was valid from the moment of his death until the day the notice appeared. They also desecrate the president's residence and plant photographs of him having wild parties so that the tourists can denigrate his behaviour. Dishonesty and lies are the hallmark of this military government. These are just some of the ideas that resonate with me. and I'm sure you'll have your own standout ideas. I'd love to hear them and perhaps share them in the next episode. So let me know your thoughts. Now, overall, I probably would give it three or four stars uh, it's not really a book for me what did you think of the book just a little bit about the author isabel angelica alenda Aljona is american spanish she's born in lima she's a chilean writer Alenda, whose work sometimes contains aspects of the genre magical realism, is known for novels such as the house of the spirits and the city of beasts 2002 which have been commercially successful. Alend has been called the world's most widely read Spanish language author. In 2004, Alend was inducted into the American Academy of Arts and Letters and in 2010 she received Chile's National Literature Prize. President Barack Obama awarded her the 2014 Presidential Medal of Freedom. Allende's novels are often based upon her personal experience and historical events and pay homage to the lives of women while weaving together elements of myth and realism. She has lectured and toured many US colleges to teach literature. Fluent in English, Allende was granted United States citizenship in 1993, having lived in California since 1989. She was born in Lima, Peru, the daughter of Francisca Jolona Barros. While living in Chile, 
Allende finished her secondary studies and met engineering student Miguel Frias, whom she married in 1962. They had two children, a son and a daughter. Reportedly, Allende married early into an Anglophile family and a kind of double life. At home, she was the obedient wife and mother of two. In public, she became, after a spell, translating Barbara Cartland, a moderately well-known TV personality, a dramatist and a journalist on a feminist magazine. From 1959 to 1965, Allende worked with the United Nations Food and Agricultural Organization in Santiago, then in Brussels and elsewhere in Europe. For a short time in Chile, she also had a job translating romance novels from English to Spanish. However, she was fired for making unauthorised changes to the dialogue of the heroines to make them sound more intelligent, as well as altering the Cinderella ending to allow the heroines to find more independence and do good in the world. In 1973, Salvador Allende was overthrown in a coup led by General Augusto Pinochet. Isabel found herself arranging safe passage for people on the wanted lists, which she continued to do until her mother and stepfather narrowly escaped assassination. When she herself was added to the list and began receiving death threats, she fled to Venezuela, where she stayed for 13 years. It was during this time that Allende wrote her debut novel, The House of Spirits. Allende has stated that her move from Chile made her a serious writer. She says, quote, I don't think I would be a writer if I had stayed in Chile. I would be trapped in the chores, in the family, in the person that people expected me to be. Alend believed that being female in a patriarchal family, she was not expected to be a liberated person. Her history of oppression and liberation is thematically found in much of her fiction, where women contest the ideals of patriarchal leaders. In Venezuela, she was a columnist for El Nacional, a major international newspaper. In 1978, she began a temporary separation from Miguel Frias. She lived in Spain for two months and then returned to her marriage. She divorced her first husband, Miguel Frias, in 1987 during a visit to California on a book tour in 1988. Allende met her second husband, California attorney and novelist William C. Willie Gordon. They married in July 1988. In 1994, she was awarded the Gabriella Mistral Order of Merit, the first woman to receive this honour. Most of her family lives nearby with her son, his second wife and her grandchildren just down the hill in the house she and her second husband vacated. She separated from Gordon in April 2015. Although not as openly political as some of her contemporary writers, she expressed contempt for Donald Trump and his policies following his election in 2016. And she later endorsed Democrat Joe Biden during the 2020 presidential election. She has also regularly defended the record of her father's cousin, Salvador Allende. Thank you very much, Isabel Allende, for that novel. Now, the next book I'm going to read is Chica Walker by Alan Garner. It was nominated for the 2022 Booker Prize. It's going to be April's book. It's 152 pages, published in 2021. And if you're reading alongside, I'll be reading up to page 75. I'm just going to read the first few pages and give you my initial thoughts. Ragbone, ragbone, any rags, pots for rags, donkey stone. Joe looked up from his comic and lifted his eye patch. Nooney rattled past the house and the smoke from her engine blew across the yard. It was midday, the sky shone. Ragbone, ragbone, any rags, pots for rags, donkey stone. Quick, Joe, now, Joe. Joe pulled the patch down, got off his mattress on the top of the chimney cupboard and stood at the big window. The last of Nooney's smoke curled through the valley and along the brook. He could see no one in Barncroft or pool field, or big meadow, or on the track between the top and bottom gates, and trees hid the way up from there to the heath. He went back to bed. Ragbone, ragbone, any rags, pots for rags, donkey stone. The voice was below the window. He climbed down again. There was a white pony in the yard. It was harnessed to a cart, a flat cart with a wooden chest on it. A man was sitting at a front corner of the cart, holding the reins. His face was creased. He wore a long coat, 
and a floppy high-crowned hat with hair straggling beneath and a leather bag was slung from his shoulder across his hip. Very interested to see what conversation Joe and this rag and bone man are going to have. So that's Treacle Walker and that's going to be April's book. Thanks very much for listening. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear them. So leave a comment below or if you're listening to the episode, send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. And if you want to recommend a future book to read together, do let me know. I look forward to discussing the first half of Treacle Walker by Alan Garner, published in 2021, and the next episode of Bookshook on the second Friday of April. That's April the 14th. See you then. Mm -hmm.